Hello, Jamie the editor here. Um, just a heads up, there was a couple of issues with the Skype call, so the audio quality isn't as good as usual, but I hope you enjoy anyway. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Talking Terror podcast brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on February 27th, uh, 2018 at approximately 3pm GMT. So obviously if there's anything that's happened in the meantime after the recording of this episode, we were unable to cover it in our discussion. As always, if you want to follow us on Twitter and find out about any of the upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. So on with today's show. It's my great pleasure and honor to welcome onto today's pod Daniel Byman, who's a professor and senior associate dean at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policies at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Byman has served as a professional staff member with both the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks on the United States, the 9-11 Commission, and the Joint 9-11 Inquiry Staff on, uh, of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. He has also worked as the research director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy at the RAND Corporation and as an analyst of the Middle East for the U.S. intelligence community. Dr. Byman has written widely on a range of topics related to terrorism, international security in the Middle East. His publications have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, International Security and numerous other scholarly policy and popular journals. His books include Deadly Connections, States That Sponsor Terrorism, and A High Price, The Triumphs and Failure of Israeli Counterterrorism. His latest book is Al-Qaeda, The Islamic State, and The Global Jihadist Movement, What Everyone Needs to Know, published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Byman received his BA in Religion from Amherst College and his PhD in Political Science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dan, thank you so much for being on today's pod. Thank you for having me. So, as I ask with every, with every guest, how did you first become involved in this area of research? When I left college, I was working for the U.S. government on the Middle East. And in the Middle East in general, a lot of foreign policy, a lot of security issues are heavily linked to domestic politics. And it's no secret, a number of countries involved had significant violence problems with a range of opposition groups, and one of the ways that states compete in the Middle East is to work with opposition groups, sometimes violent opposition groups, in other countries. So I was following the stability of a number of countries, and they were dealing with terrorism problems, and I was also following the activities of other countries like Iran that were meddling in the affairs of their neighbors and using violent groups, including terrorist groups, to do so. so my initial exposure to a lot of the issues um, in the study of terrorism came really from a Middle East perspective and less so from the perspective of kind of the world's terrorist groups, whether that's Europe, Asia, or other countries. And when, you're do, when you were uh, becoming involved and gaining your interest, obviously you've got uh, a policy background, but when you started engaging with the academic literature, um, what was it, what were the, the readings that were really speaking to you and really informed uh, the way that you were thinking about these core issues? 
after I got my PhD, I was at the Rand Corporation for several years, and of course, some of the great names in the study of terrorism either are there or were there. My office, in fact, happened to be next to that of Bruce Hoffman, who to me is one of the greatest names in the field. And so he was there, uh, Brian Jenkins was there, uh, there were a number of other scholars that would have, like Peter Chalk, Bill Rosenau, uh, Kim Cragen. So there was a real concentration of expertise over the years at RAND. And just talking to those experts, learning their perspectives, reading their writings, um, all that to me was very influential. And Bruce Hoffman's book, Inside Terrorism, uh, which comes out in 1998, I believe, uh, is to me still the single best volume on the study of terrorism and had a, a tremendous influence in how I think about these issues. Uh, that, that must have been some office to work in with those kind of names uh, there. You, it's a real a who's who uh, of, of terrorism scholars. So what was it about Inside Terrorism? What, what did it give you and, and what does it still give today? We're, we're on to... Uh, multiple editions since. Um, what, why is this so influential? Um, it's a great book for unpacking the basics of terrorism in a way that doesn't lose nuance, but at the same time is crystal clear. So simply beginning by talking about definitions and their complexities, the different ways of thinking about what terrorism is and how that's changed over the years, trying to understand things like terrorism in civil war, terrorism in guerrilla war. Um, these are things that have profound implications for anyone doing research or anyone seeking to understand terrorism. And then Hoffman goes into tactics. He goes into how the media environment has changed. And what I love about the book and each edition is um, he's not someone who sticks to what he says before. He's someone who really recognizes and makes very clear that terrorism is a fast-changing field. And he tries to keep up and really explain to everyone else how these changes should affect our understanding. And to me, he always does a great job with this. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's, it's, it's one that influences, influences all of us still. And so Hoffman's book, it's, it's quite a broad, general book trying to bring in uh, all aspects in relation uh, to terrorism and does so, so successfully. But you also put down as one of your influential books is the 1986 piece by Anjami, The Vanished Imam, Musa al-Sadar and the Shia of Lebanon. What was it about this book, uh, about this publication, that really, um, that really influenced you? I have a a very strong personal interest in the Lebanese Hezbollah. I find it a group that is both quite formidable from a terrorism point of view, but also from a political and social point of view. It's a very important actor within Lebanon, it's an important actor in the region, and it's deeply rooted. So you wouldn't see Hezbollah making what I feel are the mistakes that the Islamic State has made. Uh, you see Hezbollah being able to shape governments as well as local populations. And Ajani's book really gives context to understanding the rise of a group like Hezbollah. It's not about Hezbollah, to be clear, but it's about Lebanon and the Shia population and the shift of this community from a very quiescent political attitude to a very active one. And what I would also add is that it's beautifully written. Um, Ajani, unlike unlike me, and unlike many scholars, is someone who writes in a really a literary way where you can read it and really feel you know, something of a sense of awe out of the prose as well. So it's a compelling book 
as a book as well as one I found very influential. And you mentioned there the, about Hezbollah not making the mistakes that Islamic State have made. What mistakes are you are you thinking about there? Well, the Islamic State, to me, has made some of their big mistakes over the years. Uh, one is that it believed its own propaganda. So it believed that it was going to establish a caliphate, and this caliphate would endure and expand, and it could do so forever. They would take on the world. And when you take on the world, the world usually wins. So the Islamic State made a lot of enemies, including many it didn't need to make. Um, it sent fighters, uh, it used a lot of foreigners that alienated the locals. And in general, to me, it was very successful at using violence, but less successful at trying to last and endure. And if you look at Hezbollah, which emerges in the early 1980s and you know, decades later is still a profound presence, this is a group that has learned to use violence effectively, but also has learned when not to take on UN. So we haven't seen the Lebanese Hezbollah doing the terrorist attacks in the United States, for example. It's not calling for that. It recognizes that that would be a disaster for the group, even as the group is actively working with different Shia groups around the world, including some that have targeted U.S. soldiers. So it's not that this is a friendly group. It's a group that recognizes how to limit its own violence in a prudent way that minimizes its exposure. Yeah, and it's, it, it shows a great respect for the importance of, uh, of the support networks around it, both the passive and the active supporters as well, and in, in order to, to maintain the organization, to maintain it, maintain it continuing on. Um, the, the final piece as well that you have before discussing your own work, it's an interesting one. It's the Alan Coulson's Inside Al-Qaeda's Hard Drive. Could you, uh, could you tell our listeners who wouldn't know about this, uh, what exactly is the is this piece, and uh, what uh, how did it come on to influence not just your way of thinking but your understanding of the the whole the, all the issues around it? So uh, this is a reporter who was in Afghanistan shortly after the fall of the Taliban, and for a somewhat long story, but he needed a new computer, and he ends up getting Ayman Zawahiri's old computer somewhat by chance. And as a result, we get Ayman Zawahiri's hard drive with his correspondence for several years, or at least the correspondence from that computer. And when people who don't study terrorism imagine a master of terrorist correspondence, they you know, presumably assume uh, hundreds of plots and dastardly thoughts. But what's striking about this is what Zawakari was focused on were basic bureaucratics. He's in arguments with subordinates over the cost of a fax machine. He's constantly penny-pinching and trying to extract every dollar from his, um, his far-flung cells. He is trying to make sure people are on board with his mission, while many people are criticizing him and the direction he has taken in moving the Egyptian group he led, or leads, uh, closer to al-Qaeda. And to me, I'm, I picked this particular example because I think it's a, it's a good read, but we have again and again a lot of internal documents from terrorist groups, and this could be from Al-Qaeda, such as those that were captured at the Abbottabad raid, where we have a lot from the Islamic State. Uh, the West Point uh, Combatant Terrorism Center has published a lot of these. Um, and to me, these almost always show the problems group, groups have. 
And from the outside, people who are not used to studying terrorism tend to see them as very unified, strategic actors who are very committed to ideology. And when you start to go into the internal details, you see all the infighting, you see the divisions, you see the bureaucratics, you see all the problems they have, which we should expect when we think about it, but we often forget. Yeah, and it, it's getting this understanding of what, not just, not just what's the political motives behind it, but what goes on in these groups and um, with these individuals outside of terrorism and outside of the, the propaganda, outside of uh, the political motivations. That can, as you said, be sometimes the most interesting uh, part and the most fascinating part. It's a way to understand how groups not just continue but sustain themselves and members stay involved as well. So it's, a, it's definitely a, an interesting insight to get into those those. Uh, into those situations of non-terrorist of of terrorists and non-terrorist activity, and um, but for the remainder of the podcast, and as 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 our listeners know, the majority of our podcasts are spent looking at your own work and your own uh, your your own research, and uh, you've you've published extensively on on these topics that we're looking at. The first one that we're going to to touch on though is your two thousand and five piece, "Deadly Connections: States That Sponsor Terrorism." Um, could you let our listeners know what was the aim of this piece um, and uh, what were your core core findings or, and conclusions from it? When I began teaching at Georgetown, I sent an email to Bruce Hoffman and said, I'm going to have a couple classes on state-sponsored terrorism. What are the great works I should assign? And he emailed back and said, there's a real void in this area, that this hasn't been done. And, and that was striking to me because so much of the focus of counterterrorism for many years uh, was um, a focus on states. So you had Iran, of course, after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. You had uh, Libya, especially in the early Gaddafi years, uh, Sudan, uh, Afghanistan under the Taliban. And so I thought, I could write this book. I've studied a number of these states and groups, and I find this topic very interesting. And so part of my findings are about the motivations and actions of individual states and the impact on groups, but I'll say a number of high-level findings. Uh, one is that, of course, state support often makes groups more capable. But I think the less obvious finding is that states often put limits on their proxies. They recognize the danger of escalation, and they want to often keep the pot bubbling, but they don't want things to boil over. Um, what happens when that does is illustrated by the Taliban, where they let al-Qaeda do a true mass casualty terrorist attack, one that was off the charts. And the Taliban were overthrown. And countries like Iran, countries like Syria, they recognize that they're, they have to deal with limits, even as they use these groups to achieve their ends. Um, also, there are often negatives for the groups involved. Uh, they often have restraints. They often have to answer to foreign masters. And a number of foreign masters, Pakistan, for example, Syria, uh, they often like to divide a movement. So sometimes they'll support individual groups, but they'll support multiple groups in order to keep the movement as a whole divided and thus more likely to be under their control. And this can be disastrous for the cause as a whole. So. The Palestinian groups, one of the things that have plagued them over the years is the sheer number of them. 
And that's exacerbated by state support, by states that have backed different factions in order to gain advantage in the Palestinian struggle. And the last thing I would say on my major findings is uh, when we talk about Chicago's groups like Al-Qaeda, a lot of the problem has not been active state support, although we certainly saw that with Sudan and then the Taliban. But it's been passive state support. It's been states that have knowingly tolerated Al-Qaeda activity, that they've allowed fundraising, they've allowed recruitment, they've encouraged a certain mindset. And all this to me is very important to counterterrorism, that if you want to fight a group like Al-Qaeda, it's not just stopping an overt sponsor, but it's making sure that the fundraising networks dry up. It's making sure that foreign fighters can't go to the group. And a lot of counterterrorism depends on getting states that are looking the other way to take action. And so taking a step back, um, one of the, the issues around uh, terrorism studies as a whole is this question of, of a definition, a definition of terrorism. But with regards to this, what would the definition, how do you see state sponsorship? Now, is this, you mentioned passive as well as active state sponsorship, but as a whole, what uh, would state sponsorship of a, of a terrorist organization be uh, defined as? Uh, so part of it is providing a range of support. So this can include a sanctuary, it can be propaganda, it can be money, it can be weapons, it can be training, it can be expertise. There's a host of things that states have provided that can make a terrorist group more dangerous. And in particular, sanctuary is probably the most important and the most dangerous. Um, I see passive support as a little different, where it's states allowing groups a certain degree of freedom to grab resources of various sorts without much interference. Um, this may seem too fine a line to some listeners, but I would distinguish between passive support and incapacity. It's different if a state simply doesn't control its entire territory and thus cannot stop a group. It might be trying as hard as it can, but it can't do everything. And we see that even with the most capable states, right? So European states, the United States, you do have terrorists active on their soil, and it's not that the states are supporting the terrorists, it's that they're not able to stop everything. Uh, but that's different from when a state has the power and decides not to use it. So an example from the 1970s would be when the provisional IRA was using the United States as a place to get money and weapons, and uh, was using America effectively as a rear base. Uh, later on in the jihadist movement, uh, Saudi Arabia was allowing a certain degree of fundraising to go forward without significant interference. And this sort of passive support isn't as egregious as active support, of course, and often isn't as deadly, but nevertheless can have profound consequences if the groups are themselves quite skilled. And you mentioned in your book that um, state-sponsored terrorism was prominent during the Cold War, um, and then after the fall of the communist bloc, there was a decrease in this. What are the core examples around during this Cold War period that we have? I know you've mentioned uh, some of them uh, and intimated some of them throughout, but what, what are we looking at here, and why was it with the fall of the communist bloc that you saw a decrease in this? So during the Cold War, some of the most prominent examples would be um, Iran, Syria, Libya, and at the same time, of course, you had a number of Eastern European states that were backing a range of individual terrorist groups um, in Europe and other places. So you, you had a fair number of states deeply involved. Uh, the end of the Cold War uh, makes it much easier for the United States or other countries to punish state sponsors. 
So Sudan in the early 1990s received fairly significant sanctions because of its support for an array of terrorist groups. And that probably wouldn't have happened or would have at least been far harder during the Cold War. Uh, Libya, too, suffers very severe sanctions. And so punishment is easier. Escalation is easier because you don't have the back and forth between the United States and the Soviet Union. But another factor, at least I think, is that you have less ideological states. So Iran, after the 1979 uh, revolution, uh, after Gaddafi comes to power, um, these are times when the states and the leaders involved are highly revolutionary and highly ideological. And as a result, they're willing to challenge, you could say, the international system. They're willing to support an array of actors and suffer the price in a way that Iran today, for example, still uses terrorism, but it's much more cautious, much more pragmatic. And um, as a result, I don't think you see, you still see significant activities, but it's a very different sort of problem. Yeah. And from your research and from your analysis, like we, we would often find out, uh, we'd often look at why would states choose to sponsor a certain terrorist group? But from your analysis, why do states then at times decide to break off these ties uh, from certain terrorist groups? When does this uh, take place? What are the key influencing factors that could, could be involved in that? So part of it, as would be expected, is simply a change in strategy, that uh, groups are useful for a period of time, and then they're not. And that can be because the state gets what it wants at the bargaining table, because um, it has other objectives. So you might see states that are backing groups and all of a sudden cut them. Uh, a lot of it is idea there is a waning of ideology and a waning of fervor. But usually, it's a shift along a spectrum. So it's not that support goes from everything to nothing. It's that it goes from um, some support to a little less support, and then it goes up a bit, and then it goes down a bit. So usually, there's a back and forth. And at times, I think counterterrorism misses this, that there's a, it sees the service support as binary. Is the state a supporter, yes or no? And needs to recognize more that there's been a shift from considerable support to much less support. Now, we saw this under Syria, where Syria was really a massive supporter of an array of groups in the 70s and the early 1980s. And then over time, became less active. It was still supporting groups, though. So it's still a supporter of terrorism. But that shift deserves recognition. Yeah, and we, we constantly need to be monitoring this and constantly need to be monitoring the shifts in, in, the, in relation to this issue and all issues that, w that we're focusing on, of course. A lot of your research, and uh, as, you, uh, as your most recent book shows, uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, has focused on, on Al-Qaeda as well as, as other factors. And you talk in, in this book, uh, Deadly Connections, about the decline of Al-Qaeda after being ousted from Afghanistan. Um, what exactly took place here and what were the tangible effects that we see uh, on Al-Qaeda uh, as a movement? Well, as many listeners will know, the question of Al-Qaeda's decline is contested. Um, so I'm a believer that it has uh, based significant flows, but others would disagree. So let, let me give you my sense of things. Uh, one is that losing the haven in Afghanistan was a tremendous blow. Uh, perhaps 20,000 people came through Afghanistan um, uh, and were trained in camps either by Al-Qaeda or similar jihadist groups. And this gave the group access to a tremendous network. Um, and although, of course, Afghanistan today is still in the middle of a civil war, uh, you don't have the massive training camp architecture. 
And as a result, you don't have the connections being formed among individuals. You have less indoctrination and, of course, less skilled people. Um, in addition, there's a massive global counterterrorism campaign. And I can't stress that change enough. So um, in the early 1990s, uh, Ayman Zawakari, who's now head of al-Qaeda, uh, he came to the United States to raise money. Right? I mean, that, that's just inconceivable. And again, it's not that the world is perfect when it comes to counterterrorism, but the sheer number of people, the changes in laws, the shifts in money and resources and authorities, um, all of this is massive. And if you think of something like the 9-11 plot, where you have plotters who you know, often begin in Germany, who hook up to people in other countries, uh, often by uh, camps in Pakistan and um, Afghanistan, you have fundraising out of the UAE, you have key meetings in Spain and Malaysia, and of course, you have an attack in the United States. All of that would be harder today in every country. And that doesn't mean there's no terrorism. But I think over time, we've seen the toll on Al-Qaeda. And then when you add the drone campaign to this, you add the killing of its leaders and the constant hunting of them, um, this makes it far harder for it to operate. Now, it has affiliates, and many of these affiliates are involved in very bloody civil wars. So the threat to the Middle East is, is quite profound. But these affiliates have been of mixed loyalty. We very recently saw the Al-Qaeda Syrian affiliate have a public quarrel with Al-Qaeda and say it was going its own way. So these affiliates, again, I don't want to make them sound gentle. They're, they're nasty groups that um, are up to violent things. But they're more local and regional, and they're less about the global Al-Qaeda agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... It's as I said, uh, like this is this is broadened out uh, in your in your most recent book, Al Qaeda, the Islamic State, and the Global Jihadist Movement. What everyone needs to know. Um, so let's take a step back in relation to Al Qaeda, and before moving on to Islamic State, you talk about the founding of this group. We had talked just there about uh, its push away from Afghanistan, but when we look at the origins of this group, what role did, say, the, the influence of someone such as Abdullah Assam have on the shaping of this movement as, and what it was during its first few years and what it has become today? So you're using the word I often use, which is movement. Um, I tend to see a global, solitary jihadist movement. And within this movement, there are groups and individuals who focus locally, there are some who focus regionally, and then there are some that have a, a true global agenda that attack the United States or Europe or otherwise are willing to go thousands of kilometers to, to do their fighting. And Azam is really the beginning of this movement in many ways, sir. You can always argue there's a beginning before the beginning, but I think Azam's as, as good a place to begin as any. Where he makes the case and starts to convince people to come to Afghanistan to fight on behalf of people they've never met um, and fight the Soviets. And this is a dramatic shift, and you have people who end up in Afghanistan from all different parts of the Muslim world. And they begin to meet each other, and they begin to exchange ideas. And they're they're militarily irrelevant. The, they play almost no real role in the anti-Soviet struggle. But they come away from it with a sense of purpose, and they have a story to tell. And their story is, we show up, we fight, and then God leads the Soviet Union to collapse. And that's a heck of a story. 
And from there, you have splinters. You have some groups that want to focus on Kashmir, some groups that want to focus on Egypt. You have um, Al-Qaeda, of course, over time, moves towards a focus on the United States. So the movement itself never truly unifies, but at times it coalesces around some charismatic leaders or some dominant groups. But you, um, Azam is, the, I will say, the first mover that gets the ball rolling, and things go in lots of different directions, but without Azam, many of them would not have happened. Um, what in modern-day Al-Qaeda, and even among uh, the teachings in the, uh, of the Islamic State, what kind of role does the does the the beliefs and teachings of Assam play uh, on the leadership as well as the rank and file, or is it completely uh, and completely gone now? Uh, it's certainly not completely gone. Uh, Azam talked about the idea. I would say a key theme in Azam is that Muslims have a common identity as Muslims, right? And that's just such an important basic concept. Right? But that you're not a Saudi, you're not an Egyptian, you're a Muslim. And therefore, when your community is attacked, you have a duty to respond. And that is a very powerful message that is still a basic teaching for many of these groups. Um, and a lot, though, has shifted. Azam was much more about insurgency, uh, much less about pure terrorism. He was much more about fighting foreign occupiers and not about killing Shia. Um, he wasn't focused on Western powers if they weren't involved in the Middle East. So a lot of what Islam taught is not the focus of groups today, but I still think some of the core principles of what Islam pushed are very relevant. When you're writing a book like this, where, you're, where you give yourself the, the title at the end, What Everyone Needs to Know, how do you decide what it is that everyone needs to know? What was the, the key thinking of the, the, the topics that needed to be covered here? Because it's a lot to fit in. It's a huge task to, to, to take on. The, the title actually makes me smile as well. Um, there was an Oxford series called the What Everyone Needs to Know series, and I wrote the one on uh, jihadist movements, but healthcare, there's one on crime, there's one on Cuba. So there's a lot of what everyone needs to know, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I had to ask myself, uh, really almost as a teacher, uh, if I had a certain amount of space, what would I want to convey to people? And so I tried to look at some history, some that was more current, some about leading groups, some about their functions like fundraising, and then a few questions were either just to me interesting or fun or you know, important. So one question I ask is about the CIA linkages to Al-Qaeda. There's not really much going on there. Mm. But there are some things just out there in the ether I felt I needed to address as well. So I would say it's a mix of the um, kind of the current, the historical, and the quirky. Yeah, and w with the... Uh with something like this and looking at, at the current and the historical, the obvious starting point is like the strategies and tactics are one of the obvious starting points. And for many, for many not ex, non-experts on this, on this group or this topic, they would, their understanding and their knowledge of Al-Qaeda starts with 9-11. But we have a history that goes back prior to it. Um, so how have the strategies and tactics evolved um, from the origins of the group to what we have today? What do you feel have the, been the key significant changes? Uh, so we can think about 
changes in tactics in terms of uh, these groups having a repertoire. So this can range from bombings and shootings to suicide bombings to um, kidnappings to now we have people who drive cars or trucks into crowds. And we've seen a steady growth in the, the array of tactics they've used, but sometimes they reinvent things. So if we were looking at terrorism you know, 30, 40 years ago, of course we would talk about hostage taking and high profile drama on television at the time. And now we talk about hostage taking and high profile drama that's often broadcast by social media. So sometimes groups will uh, forget a tactic and then reinvent it. But we have seen a dramatic increase in suicide bombing and occasional um, tactical intervention as well. The bigger shift to me, though, is uh, the focus of many of these groups. So the jihadist movement primarily begins by groups that are trying to change their own government. So the Egyptian Islamist groups are trying to change the government of uh, Sudan and then Mubarak, the uh, Saudis who want to change the al Saud, and on and on. Um, what Azam did, to go back to him, was he began to focus it more on external invaders, saying, don't be about your own government, but about this external invader. Um, then you have bin Laden say, it's not just external invaders, it's the United States that's really the puppet master behind a lot of these regimes. Then you had a focus on sectarianism. You had um, Zarqawi in Iraq, for example, emphasizing that the enemy is not purely a hostile government toward the United States, but it's also other Muslim communities that don't share your beliefs. And to be clear, all these different strands and tensions were there at different historical periods, but some went from being really minor ones to becoming dominant. So if you look at Al-Qaeda or Zam um, in the 80s and 90s, they're not talking about sectarianism. Right? They're not really focused on the Shia. Um, on the other hand, of course, Zarqawi makes the anti-Shia struggle the heart of the matter. Um, some groups um, in the uh, 80s, late 80s and early 1990s tried to create um, caliphates. But these were minor, people didn't focus on them much. And of course, when the Islamic State does this in 2014, it's a revolutionary event for many people that attracts wide attention. So a lot of the ideas are kind of in this broader stew, but they don't take prominence until specific historical periods. Mm. And so that's the, the strategic and tactical evolution. But we also need to take into consideration uh, the support structures and particularly the financing of this uh, this movement and and these orga these organizations as well. What of what's the evolution of the the financing uh, been in relation to? Our, did has it changed? Do you feel uh, it changed quite a bit and and is almost constantly changing. Uh, so very early on in Al Qaeda's history, it does depend a lot on Bin Laden's personal wealth. Uh, it's a relatively small number of people. They're living in very poor areas in Afghanistan, and Pakistan, and having a man with billions of dollars of his own is transformative. And he's able to use his personal wealth to um, to try to fund training camps, to gain some support among fighters, and a number of groups really see him as kind of a I'll say a useful benefactor, but they're not particularly loyal. They just want to take his money and do what they want. Uh, but over time, he develops networks that enable him to tap, to tap into wealthy benefactors, especially among the Persian Gulf states. 
So his own wealth is frozen or partially runs out, but he's able to tap into millions of dollars of donations, and often this is done through ostensible charities. And by the time of the 9-11 attacks, the estimate is that about $30 million or so are going to this group, often through people who are making what they would see as charitable contributions, at times knowingly, at times unknowingly, to al-Qaeda or other jihadist groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, with groups like the Islamic State, though, when they control territory, it's been much more about taxation. Right now, you could call that extortion if you want, but they're simply extracting the resources from the communities, and sometimes that might be by kidnapping people and holding them for ransom or looting businesses. But often, it's simply saying to people, if you want to do business here, you have to pay X percentage to the Islamic State. And so, the Islamic State did get some foreign donations. It's not that it was all um, internal, but the vast majority of its funding for several years was from the resources on the territory it controlled. And are we talking about natural resources here as well? Uh, absolutely. So there are some of the parts of Syria it had had, had some limited oil reserves. Um, and groups will extract the resources they can. So in countries where they have access to um, natural resources, they'll take advantage of that. And in countries where they have, um, will have a population they can tax, they'll do that. With regards to the Islamic State now, obviously at the at the time of recording, we we hear a lot of talk about the um, the deterioration of of the Islamic State as a movement, the uh, the deterioration of their hold on on territory. Um, how do you see them uh, the the strength of of this movement at the moment at the time of recording end of February twenty eighteen? I I see it as dramatically weakened, but I'll have a few caveats, of course. Mm. Um, so the caliphate has been destroyed. They control very little territory. The flow of foreign fighters has dried up. Their finances, because it was territory linked, have dried up. Um, and I think more broadly, the group was discredited in many ways. They had a promise, which was, we're going to win, and we're establishing a true Islamic State. And both of those um, have proven to be false. Uh, but there are a lot of caveats. Uh, one is, this is a group that has come back in the past. It was on its last legs in Iraq at the end of the last decade and came back. Uh, it's not as if in Syria or Iraq you're going to have good government that's going to win over all the locals. So there's plenty of possibility of, these, of this group reviving. Um, and it has thousands of people who are uh, members or supporters or sympathizers, many of whom are scattered around the world. So it will certainly be able to do attacks. It will certainly try to do them. And we'll have some uh, success, unfortunately. So I think this is a good news story when you compare February of 2018 to, say, 2016 or 2015. But there's still ways to go. Um, when you're writing a book with the, with the title that has been uh, part of a series from Oxford of what everyone needs to know, and uh, as we've dealt with already, this wasn't exactly your choice of a title, but you, you've really lived up to the, to the billing of it. When we look at whatever we need to know, some of the people who need to know these things are those who are trying to counter the group. So what do you think the core lessons are um, from this understanding of, of, of this uh, global jihadist movement for, for countering the, this movement in the years ahead? I would say one is the danger of safe I think Afghanistan before 9-11, the Islamic State at its peak, uh, these were dangerous because individuals could go to these countries, they could train, they could meet one another, 
they can do long-term planning, and this lays networks that can endure for many years. You know, Europe was dealing with the Afghanistan, the 1990s problem, you know, throughout much of the 2000s. You know, the Madrid attack, the London attack have links to Afghanistan in a way that are, are to be quite direct and profound. And uh, so one is the Haven issue. Um, another is the need for intelligence sharing and cooperation. Uh, this is, I think, widely recognized, but I'll just say that uh, often uh, an individual country has at best a piece of the puzzle. But if you can put those pieces together effectively, then it becomes much easier to stop these groups. Uh, these individuals are usually very easy to arrest or to kill. They're just very hard to find. Mm. And so if you can find them, you've done, as far as I can tell, 90% you know, of the work. Um, and another thing I would say is that I, although I do believe the danger of terrorism is real, and of course we've seen horrible and tragic terrorist attacks, um, I would also add that at times there can be an overreaction. Um, in the United States especially, but also in Europe, um, the post-9-11 era has not been a disaster from a counterterrorism point of view. Um, this is something that in the United States, uh, U.S. homeland, suddenly over 100 people died, and that's horrible, but that's not an off-the-charts number in the history of terrorism. By the way, died from jihadist terrorism, I should say. And there's a question of how much you should spend on this, but there's also a question of how much it should affect politics. And one disturbing trend I've seen in the United States, and I believe is even more true in Europe, is how terrorism has been used to um, foster bigotry, to create resentment of refugees, and really often the danger has been exaggerated. Um, but one thing that shouldn't be um, seen as exaggerated is the danger that terrorism has posed to the Middle East. We have a number of countries that are in massive civil wars, and these wars involve groups that also use terrorism. So Libya, Yemen, of course Syria and Iraq, uh, these are countries that have huge and real problems, and terrorism is part of them. Yeah, I think this is a hugely important point to, to bring up and to emphasize uh, when we're trying to take perspective on what this threat is and where this is where this threat is is really posing a major issue. And one of the areas where it is posing uh, a significant uh, problem at the moment is is in West Africa and in relation to to especially I'm thinking of uh, the threat posed by Boko Haram who have who've declared allegiance to Islamic State. Uh, how how much do you feel, uh, from your perspective, looking at the global jihadist movement, what role do you feel a group like uh, Boko Haram is playing in it, or is this just a nominal allegiance um, to the movement? As far as I can tell, the allegiance is rather limited in its effect, that we have seen some limited cooperation on things like propaganda, but for the most part, Boko Haram is doing what it did before it declared allegiance to the Islamic State, and so there's not a dramatic change. But in any event, this is bad news. We don't want even limited sort of cooperation among these groups. And Boko Haram is a particularly nasty, unpleasant group. So I see this group as dangerous for the region it's in. And any cooperation with the Islamic State, even limited, is something that should try to be stopped. Yeah, oh, certainly. Before we get on to... Um to to your final piece that we're going to be talking about a high price the triumphs and failures of of israeli counterterrorism i want within your book um al-qaeda and the islamic state 
you spend a lot of time focusing on uh, the role that the internet has played um, for both for both groups as well and, and for the movement as a whole. Um, what role do you feel uh, it has going forward in relation not to uh, for the groups themselves, but in encountering the groups specifically uh, utilizing the internet? So terrorists use the internet for a variety of ways, as you'd expect. They try to publicize, they try to recruit, they try to fundraise, uh, at times they direct operations. Um, however, the internet is also very dangerous for them. Um, it leaves a huge signature for most people who use it. And that signature can be detected and tracked. And so large numbers of volunteers and members of these groups have been caught or killed because of what they've done on the internet. Um, I think it's very hard to completely stop the propaganda function. I do credit um, a number of internet companies with taking very dramatic steps to decrease the number of accounts. These groups are much more likely to be on less public platforms, um, so they're less likely to be on Twitter and Facebook, and more likely to be on Telegram, for example. Um, and although that the encryption function you see on Telegram makes it harder for current terrorism, it's good to have these groups less active on Twitter and Facebook. So I think that they can be pushed to be less public, to be less visible. And at the same time, I think that uh, counterterrorism has effectively gone after them to find where people are, to identify um, supporters who might not have been on the radar screen. So I think uh, we should think of the internet as um, a negative, but also as a positive. Yeah, no, oh, oh, definitely, definitely. So actually, one one final question on this on on Al Qaeda before we we move on to to Israel, what role do you see uh, Osama bin Laden's son uh, playing it with the, for the future of Al Qaeda? This is something that you see the media pushing quite a lot at the moment. Do you uh, what what how do you see it? Well, I, for now at least, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical of this. Uh, this is not someone who has his own jihadist credibility. He's not someone who has done great deeds the way his father had done or the way Zarqawi had done and that these were people who made their mark and um, the son is simply the son. That's his claim to fame is he is the son of a famous person. And I think the fact that um, Al-Qaeda is, is promoting him uh, is really a sign in some ways a weakness that they don't have leaders who have kind of massive credibility on their own that they can turn to. Instead they have to go for this strength by association. Now, maybe he'll turn out to be a strong leader, right? Uh, that has happened before, where uh, replacements that don't seem that promising at first turn out to be. But for now, at least, um, this is something I think that shows the weakness of the group. Yeah, no, it, it's it's sort of watch this space, all right. But I can see I can see the the perfect rationale of being skeptical about it as well. The final piece that you have put forward, as I mentioned, uh, was your 2013 piece, a high price, the triumphs and failures of Israeli counterterrorism. Um, what way did you look at approaching um, such a broad topic um, and such a such a tricky topic with the detailed history? What way did you feel that you was best to approach this? When I began working on terrorism and counterterrorism, I often saw that Israel was kind of the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. So things like um, airplane hijackings or suicide bombings. These were Israeli problems, and then they became global problems. Uh, but this was also true in counterterrorism. 
So for a while, it was, you know, the crazy Israelis or the hardcore Israelis that are going around killing suspected terrorists. And now the United States does this all, all the time. On things like torture, this comes up in an Israeli context, and then the United States wrestles with it as well. And my view was that uh, Israel had a lot to teach the world on how to think about this tension between effective counterterrorism and a democratic society. And the Israeli experience you know, is often caricatured. Some people see Israel as another failure because it has a profound terrorism problem decades after the creation of the state, and others see it as a success because of its skilled operations. And I tend to see it somewhere in the middle. It has a lot of impressive successes, but also some very significant weaknesses in it. Um, what what are these? What what do you feel are the are the core successes that we've seen uh, before getting onto the weaknesses? What are the the core successes of Israeli counterterrorism? So, from an operational and tactical point of view, the Israelis are often quite good. So uh, they have very renowned special forces. Uh, during the Second Intifada, they face a truly massive problem, and they really take it apart through effective intelligence gathering, in particular and also combining that with military and police actions. And this sort of array of um, harsh but very effective measures works. And to me, Israel has shown that you can use these measures to limit the terrorism problem. It doesn't solve it. But at the same time, I think Israel's intelligence gathering um, is often quite impressive. I think, in general, its penetration of terrorist groups, uh, its use of sometimes innovative uh, tactics to go after them. All that, to me, um, is um, has really done a lot to keep Israel safe. And, and what would the key the key failures, the key the key weaknesses of of, of Israeli CT be? Uh, so Israeli CT is often limited to counterterrorism. It sounds kind of obvious, mm. but often these groups are operating in a much broader political environment. So one of the best things you can do from a counterterrorism point of view, in my view, would be to have a strong Palestinian state that was cracking down on terrorist groups. And this was the hope, in fact, of the 1990s peace negotiations, was that the Palestinians would police themselves, and that instead of Israel having to do daring or difficult operations, the Palestinian police would simply show up at someone's door and arrest them. And at times that, that has worked, and that's what happens today in Jordan or in Egypt, where there's a terrorist cell there operating against Israel. Israel calls up the government, and the government deals with it. Um, what Israel has not done is, um, is often, I shouldn't say this, it's a much more, it's a complex history, but it, in much of its history, it has weakened moderate Palestinians. And because of that, it's made it harder for the Palestinians to be able to police themselves. And in addition, by continuing the occupation of the West Bank, um, Israel has made it hard for a credible Palestinian alternative government to arise there that can have nationalist credibility. And that is in Israel's interest. It wants a Palestinian government that's strong enough to stop terrorism. And at times, Israel has undermined this. And I feel there have been several critical moments in Israeli history when this could have happened. Um, instead, Israel has often used counterterrorism at a tactical level in a way that's undercut the Palestinian um, political side. And Israel has often tried to choose its own negotiating partner. So it's tried to say that, 
You know, when we negotiate with the Palestinians, we're going to negotiate with these leaders. But if those leaders aren't representing the broader Palestinian movement, then it's not going to work. And that is something that Israel has never solved. And so I suppose this is, it's the relationship when you're looking at counterterrorism, you've got to, you've got to have a balanced relationship between the military, the intelligence units and the politicians. And that's a, it's a tricky balancing act to, to play and to each with their own, uh, their own purposes. And you, you talk about the cross purposes of these, these different entities. What effect has, has that have and where, when have we seen this really, um, destabilize things for for the Israeli uh, counterterrorism efforts? So in the 1990s, when the hostile negotiations are going on, uh, you have several very fast, effective terrorist attacks. You have the a Jewish terrorist kills Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and Palestinian terrorists do a series of bombings against uh, buses in Israel that lead to the election of Benjamin Netanyahu on a platform very critical of peace talks. And terrorism, and I would say the failure of counterterrorism, led to the critical moment of peace talks not succeeding. Uh, but after that, counterterrorism was going reasonably well. For all the problems of the late 1990s, there was considerable counterterrorism cooperation. And that was a moment when a peace deal could have been reached. That was a moment when uh, there was credibility on the Palestinian negotiating side. And unfortunately, a deal was not reached. And my view is that the fear of terrorism, the problems that Israel has had in trusting Palestinian side, which you know, in many cases were justifiable. Arafat was, to put it gently, a law and partner, and that was mm. usually not put it gently. Um, that for all these problems, there was a chance of having a peace deal, and that would have had tremendous counterterrorism benefits, even putting aside the broader political benefits for Israel. Mm. When we're looking at this as well, it's it's so easy to just focus on the key players. And here you you mentioned Arafat. You've mentioned uh, we've we've talked about the the key auspices of the state here. But when we're looking at counterterrorism, it's not just done by those state actors. But we need um, the buy-in of of the population as a whole. And one of the positives that you point to as well is within Israel, uh, the Israeli people exhibit. It huge resilience to adapt, grow, and prosper under continued hostility. Um, how has this uh, been achieved, and how has this worked to the benefit of the, the state's counterterrorism efforts? When you go to the basics of terrorism, we, we began this interview by talking about Bruce Hoffman's definition. Um, one of the things he talks about is the psychological impact of terrorism. And if we think about that, if a the terrorist attack on a mall um, occurs. Uh, if, if people don't go to that individual mall, the economic impact is marginal, the local impact is marginal. But if people don't go to malls in general, that's devastating. And we can't expect people not to react to an immediate terrorist attack in the neighborhood. But we can hope that government policy can encourage life to go on as much as possible. And this is something when Israel's been able to do this, it's enabled the state to live with terrorism, right? So um, someone I talked to in Israel distinguished the difference between uh, living with fear and living in fear. For the Haydn Second Intifada, 2001-2002, many Israelis lived in fear. Economic activity was hurt, people were afraid to do basic activities, uh, families were very careful. 
but over time people are able to live their lives with the risk of terrorism around. And that has tremendous benefit for a state economically, but also just for the lives of people socially um, as well, and that's um, a success of counterterrorism. Yeah. yeah, and you can see this in relation to other conflicts as well. Yeah, yeah. You can see this in relation to Northern Ireland during the Troubles uh, and elsewhere as well. For your Within your own country at the moment, you obviously have a lot of um, discussion on building of defensive measure defensive infrastructure and often there's a comparison between this border wall um between uh the u.s and mexico with the bar with the border walls uh, the walls that are built uh, by the israelis um how effective has this kind of defensive infrastructure been um in relation to israeli counterterrorism? not just the walls but we also see situations such as uh, sky marshals as well and airplanes um, and other uh, other approach defensive measures as well. What is what is the effect of these being? Uh, I'm I'm always uncomfortable with the U.S. comparison mm. with the U.S.-Mexico border just because there isn't um, significant terrorism problem from from these types of groups. Yeah. But the broader point about defensive measures is very important. Uh, we can think of defensive measures as a system. Right, where um, they slow groups down, they force groups to have to operate more widely to get around the defenses. They have groups have to be smarter. They have to make fewer mistakes, and a perfect group can still overcome defenses. But there are very few perfect groups. Right, you'll have individuals are individuals. They make mistakes uh, every time. One of the lines I liked uh, from an Israeli intelligence officer was he said uh, 1 plus 1 is 11 when it comes to intelligence. So for every other individual who knows about a plot, you have an exponentially greater number of chances to discover it. So to go around a checkpoint, you might have a local cell that needs to work with a second local cell. And that enables penetration. Um, they might have to drive farther, and that might be when they go through a checkpoint or a near checkpoint that a weapon is discovered. Uh, when you channel people through certain entry points in the barrier, you have opportunities to search them. Um, when people are trying to skirt the barrier, you have an opportunity to identify people who are doing certain types of dangerous or illegal activity. Um, again, none of this by itself stops the group, but it means you have to be much better, especially when you have aggressive offensive measures, um, killing people, arresting people, monitoring people. Then you're able to make the group weaker which makes it harder for it to overcome defensive measures, which means it makes more mistakes, which means it's more likely to be arrested or killed, and the cycle continues. And we really saw that by the end of the Second Intifada, where the Palestinian groups became less and less capable, the number of successful attacks declined, the amount of violence they were able to do declined, and it wasn't because the groups were all of a sudden eager to seek a ceasefire, but rather they just became decimated, and the defensive measures made it harder for them to do operations. Yeah. No, it's... And it's the the comparison. I, I I'm in complete agreement with you about uh, the comparison between the the Mexican border wall and 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 this wall is uh, is is not a, an accurate one to make, but it is one that continually uh, uh, gets made when when proposing and uh, proposing this border wall. When we're when with so many people having their focus shifted now to uh, to the Islamic State, um, to Syria and elsewhere. A lot of the focus has left Israel. Like during the '90s, it would be constantly what pe what people would be focusing on. So, what does the 
conflict look like at the moment? What are the key um, the key issues uh, for our listeners to be aware of in relation to uh, to the Israeli Palestinian conflict? Uh, so one is this question of um, the Israeli occupation in Jordan and what that means for the credibility of Palestinian government in the West Bank. A lot of um, day-to-day counterterrorism is done by the West Bank Palestinian government, and can that endure as long as the occupation uh, continues indefinitely? The answer might be yes. Right? The local government has its own interest in doing so, but it's politically difficult without any progress on peace negotiations. Uh, but the single biggest issue to me is the question of Gaza and the fate of Hamas. Um, Hamas has been the effective government of Gaza for over a decade now. And uh, there are a host of problems in Gaza, and in some ways Hamas is eager to shed the burden of governing. But this question of what to do about a group that began as a terrorist group but now is a government is a very complex one. Do you want to normalize it? Do you want to isolate it? Um, it's part of society, so it's very hard to crush completely. Um, and I think the international community and Israel haven't come up with a good answer to this. And as a result, you have Gaza in this in-between state where it's not normalized, but at the same time, uh, Hamas is able to cling to power. And you mentioned the role of the international community there. I just want to touch on this before uh, finishing up the podcast. What, like, Obviously, we've got a history in, within this conflict of significant roles of the U.S. government and the other governments as well, if you look at the, the Oslo Accord and elsewhere. What is the future role of the international community, both the U.S. and the broader, the broader international community, in relation to, to this situation, this conflict? Well, I would like to see the international community involved in trying to resolve it. Um, I think the United States is largely abdicating its responsibilities in the Middle East in particular, and that's rather frustrating to me. Um, I don't see either the Palestinian or the Israeli side as ready for a breakthrough. So to be fair, I don't think the moment is particularly ripe. But I would like to see steady international efforts to try to negotiate a settlement. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be uh, being done right now. And the declaration of Jerusalem as the, as the, the state capital, what effect did, did that have um, in Israel and Palestine? Uh, I think this is um, seen by many as a sign that the United States isn't serious about trying to be an arbiter mm-hmm. and it is focusing more on its own domestic politics than on the situation there. And so yeah, I don't think people in the region needed much convincing on that score, but this was a very open reminder of that. Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you so much for the time here uh, on today's podcast. Before we go, how do you see the, the health of modern-day terrorism research at the moment, and where do you see the, the future leading for it? Well, it's really an amazing um, increase in the number of people who have been doing terrorism research, and also, I'd say, um, an exceptional number of, of uh, skilled younger scholars. So people who have really mastered particular conflicts or particular regions and have, have a deep, in-depth understanding. So if you compare it to when I began studying this in the mid-1990s, it's, it's really uh, night and day. Uh, my own concern in some ways is that the terrorism field has become too broad, that we look at groups that I think are much more akin to you know, groups involved in civil wars. We look at situations like Gaza where it's really a quasi-state, and we use the terrorism label to discuss all this. And I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. I don't want to claim a certain 
definition of purity. But I think the field of terrorism could become too big to the point where many of the most interesting and important dynamics of a terrorist group are obscured when we add all these other categories of analysis. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. It's actually one that hasn't been been raised in relation to this on on the podcast. And it's, yeah, we do have this this tendency at the moment for every group to be brought in under the terrorist label. And it's something that we really, that all goes back to that that definitional debate that we were talking about with with Bruce Hoffman uh, at the very beginning of the podcast. So Dan, thank you, thank you so much for for spending this time uh, with us uh, today. I'm sure listeners. Uh, got great value for from it and and i'm i'm i know that i did um for anyone who wants to engage more in depth with any of the pieces that were talked about today be sure to go to dan's profile on the talking terror podcast there you can find links to where you can get uh where you can purchase the books or where you can uh, get get uh, more in-depth access to the to the original sources dealt with uh, as always, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. And be sure to join us next week where I'll be talking to the director of C-Rex, Professor Tori Bjorgo, about his ongoing research and his the influences on his research in relation to terrorism and the far right. Okay, until then, goodbye.